Welcome back, everybody, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitzel. And before we get started, I just wanted to say that after last week's episode, thank God we do these things virtually. Seriously, yeah, I found out after the fact that um, Jeffrey's recording was corrupted and he lost all of his stuff. So poor you, you had to re-record everything and then try to splice everything together as opposed to taking the live recording from the night of when you're talking with me and taking my piece and getting everything working together and it being pretty. So you had your work cut out for you last time. Okay, so basically what happened was I recorded the episode as usual, I saved it as usual, and somehow my hand flicked my external hard drive, and unfortunately my external hard drive is very sensitive to movement, and for the first time ever, my file was not able to be opened. I tried everything to save it, it just was not possible, and ultimately I decided after numerous attempts to retrieve it, rather than have you come back and re-record the whole episode, I would just take your recording and record around that, even though you thankfully were on standby to record again if necessary. But in a little over two hours, I was able to replace the dialogue that I had lost. Not identically, but I think I did the best I could. So in the future, if anybody asks me, tell me about a time when you went above and beyond to finish a project, there's your answer right there. Absolutely. You did a phenomenal job. And I mean, had I not been aware of it, I don't know that I would have necessarily noticed because you did a phenomenal job of making it sound about as natural as possible. I give credit for the fact that it took us until the 1999 episode to have any level of technical difficulties like that. Well, when we do this often enough, we're tempting fate every time, and they say it was the first time for everything, and this was the first time this particular thing happened, so I am very proud of myself. I'm giving myself a pat on the back for that. And then the other thing I want to mention before we get into this episode is that a few weeks back during our 1994 episode, we listed several Hall of Famers and future Hall of Famers who never made it to a World Series. I have to amend that. Now I feel bad that I forgot his name, Joe Maurer, who the day before we recorded this episode was announced as a Hall of Fame inductee along with two others who we will talk about when we get to their episodes in the future. But I will say now that Joe Maurer is a Hall of Fame inductee who did not make it to the World Series. And again, I feel bad I left him off that list. But hey, I'm making up for it now. To be fair, at the time, he hadn't been inducted yet, and it wasn't a surefire thing. Like, he was on pace to do it, ended up just four votes over the threshold of being able to make it. So he, later this summer, after we are wrapped up and all caught up on World Series, will officially have his uh, plaque revealed and be enshrined forever in the halls of Cooperstown, New York. And I did mention in a 94 episode that Ichiro was among the people who had not been inducted and never made to the World Series, although he is a surefire Hall of Famer. But enough of all of this. We are past the 1990s, so now we get to the World Series in the year 2000. In the year 2000. I had a very different song in mind that probably would not be anywhere near as fitting. I have to credit Conan O'Brien for putting that in my head. So I will stop that right now and take a look at our World Series combatants for the first World Series of the new millennium. 
big shock, New York Yankees are back. And they are just about the same team that we have grown used to. And I have to say that I'm glad that they got through the American League Championship Series because they took out the Seattle Mariners who had swept my Chicago White Sox in the ALDS. That was the first playoff team I remember representing the White Sox franchise. And I am still salty over the fact that my U.S. history teacher who had several front pages of sports sections hanging in his classroom. He was a diehard Cubs fan, and he had the nerve to have two headlines of the White Sox getting swept by Seattle that year. So for about a year and a half, every day I had to look at Kelly Wunsch being slumped over. I don't believe that he would have the nerve to do that, and yet he did. Early 2000s me would have probably had a field day with something like that, given that uh, I bantered often with the athletic director at Aurora Christian, who is a diehard White Sox fan. I've mellowed as I've gotten older. Going back to this Yankees team, Bertie Williams, the best hitter that year, probably. He hits 307, had three home runs, 121 RBIs. Jorge Posada had 28 home runs, 86 RBIs. Another solid season for Derek Jeter, who hits 339. And you have some decent pitching, although maybe not spectacular pitching. Roger Clemens was their best ERA man at 3.70, going 13-8. Andy Pettit came within a game of 20 wins, 19-9. and And Mariano Rivera was Mariano Rivera. He had 36 saves. But a much weaker team than we are used to coming out of the Bronx. Yeah, they have newcomers. David Justice, Jose Vizcaino, Jose Canseco, Glenn Allen Hill, and Luis Soho, who had been with the Yankees previously, was reacquired from the Pirates in August. But they lost 15 of their last 18 regular season games and went 63 innings without holding a lead during that time. And yet somehow they were able to overcome all of that come playoff time. They get by the A's in a tough five-game series and then they eliminate Seattle. So they have their work cut out for them. This is not the same Downs Yankees team that we have seen in the past. In fact, they didn't even win 90 games this year. Like you said, I mean, this group, not as good as the iterations from the couple of years prior, but we know they have an October pedigree. This is their fourth World Series appearance in the last five years. And they are going to have the luxury of playing in the first Subway Series in New York City since 1956. Of course, the Dodgers and the Giants have long been relocated out west. So that leaves the New York Mets as the team to battle the Yankees for baseball supremacy as well as Big Apple supremacy. And this will be the 14th Subway Series of all time involving one of the Yankees, Dodgers, or Giants. And the first one involving the Yankees and the Mets. Of course, the Cubs and White Sox played each other in 1906. The Carls and St. Louis Browns played each other in 1944. You had the A's and Giants battling out in 1989. And still, you have to admire the fact that a Subway Series is ringing in the new millennium. And this was a Mets team that some might say to some degree was favored, if only for the fact that even though they were the wild card team, they won 94 games, a better record than the Yankees. And their big bat, Mike Piazza, a fantastic season for him, hit 324, had a 1.012 OPS, hit 38 home runs, 113 RBIs. 
Pitching, not too fantastic, but they did have Al Leiter, a friend of the program, 16 wins at a 3.20 ERA. Mike Hampton at 3.14 ERA. Closure Armando Benitez saved 41 games. So we have a couple of teams that are stacked with talent, but nobody on these teams really had career seasons. Yeah, not particularly. I mean, there's some decent other names here in this uh, Mets lineup of guys that contributed. You had a 285 average and 20 home runs for Mike Bordick, a 24 home run campaign for Robin Ventura, former White Sox guy. Thankfully, Nolan Ryan nowhere to be found in this particular iteration. Timo Perez was a um, late acquisition, but was serving as one of the table setters for this Mets team. He hit 286 in 24 regular season games for this group. And the Mets are able to overcome the previous season's disappointment, which they lost with throwing NLCS to the Braves. This time they take out the Giants and then the Cardinals. So as a result, we are getting this Subway series that everybody in New York is absolutely thrilled to experience. And the TV range would reflect that it seemed like only people in New York were interested in it. The TV ratings nationwide were not great, but still better than what we get for World Series TV ratings nowadays. But even so, you can see on the World Series film that people in the Big Apple everywhere are absolutely thrilled that this is happening you can consider New York to some degree the baseball capital of the world. And we mentioned in last week's episode as we closed the 20th century in 95 World Series, the Yankees won 25 of them. Then, you know, so they were averaging one every four years and they'd have their stretches where they'd have a little bit of a drought here and there, but so many little mini or larger scale dynasties. And they're in the midst of another one here. And in the World Series film, before we get a brief history lesson on the Subway Series, Mayor Rudolph Giuliani says that he campaigned when he ran for mayor on the premise of a subway series. And though maybe he's not directly responsible for it, it has happened under his leadership. So it's nice to see him make good on that promise, as weird as it was. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a weird thing, but it's we'll give him that, I suppose. So let us get into this first game of the World Series. Among the attendees are Spike Lee and Chris Rock. And we have some nice work by Al Leiter. Gives up no runs through the first five innings. But as we find out, the Mets can put their leadoff men on, and they do so in innings two through six. But they cannot score if their life depended on it. Here are a few examples of that. Mike Piazza singles to lead off the fourth inning, but is promptly picked off. And granted, Andy Pettit is on the mound. He has that great pickoff move, so that's not really a surprise. And then you have Todd Zeal hitting a ground ball down the third baseline. That's an issue foul that rolls back fair. So Scott Broch just picks the ball up and throws him out after not running initially. Then Benny Agbayani doubles to lead off the fifth inning, but Jay Payton is tagged out in the batter's box on a weak hit. You have the rare two unassisted for somebody who is not running. And then Todd Pratt and Mike Bordick strike out. And then we get the most egregious example in the sixth inning. Timo Perez, whom I will be happy is on a future World Series champion, singles to lead off the sixth inning. And then with two outs, we get maybe the most consequential play of the series. At least you can make an argument for it. Todd Zeal doubles off the top of the wall. And the thing is, he came very close to hitting a home run 
but the fan directly in front of it makes sure he does not interfere with the ball. Probably keep in mind what Jeffrey Mayer did in the ALCS four years before this. And we would later find out that they asked the fan what happened, and he was happy to give his perspective. But in any event, Zeal thought he had hit a home run, so he went into a home run trot. But the more egregious example of base running fouls was Timo Perez not running hard. So realizing that the ball was still in play, he had to hustle really hard. And he probably should have stayed at third base because he tries to score the relay between Justice, Jeter, and Posada. He is tagged out at the plate. Now, the Mets did argue for a home run, but the World Series film does clearly show the fan holding back, realizing the ball had not cleared the wall. And this had to be extremely frustrating for Bobby Valentine and his crew. I had to turn it back a time or two and watch it multiple times. I mean, that is about as close as you can get of a ball hitting off the top of the wall and it not being a home run. I mean, he missed it by probably a fraction of an inch. And yes, you have to uh, kind of blame Timo Perez for not running that out super well. But at the same time, give credit to Jeter. That was an incredible relay on his part to be able to gun Perez down at the plate and keep it a scoreless game. Well, as I texted you as I was watching this, the Mets are going to met. Lol, Mets. And Jose Vizcaino makes that hurt. He has a leadoff single in the sixth inning. That's the first time the Yankees have a leadoff man on. Vizcaino is forced out on a bunt by Chuck Knobloch, who moves to second on a Jeter walk. And he scores alongside Jeter on a David Justice RBI double. I mean, David Justice is a World Series wiper. We'll get more into that in a little bit. But the Mets do respond in the seventh inning with one out. Agbayani and Pate have back-to-back singles, and Pratt walks to load the bases. Then Bubba Trammell, who is pinch-hitting for Bordick, scores Agbayani and Pate a game-tying RBI single. Then after Perez advances the runners with the sack bunt, Pettit is relieved by Jeff Nelson, and he promptly gives up the go-ahead RBI infield single to Edgardo Alfonso. That scores Pratt. Leiter leaves after seven innings, having struck out seven while giving up two runs on five hits, and he walks three. And then Mariano Rivera relieves Jeff Nelson in the ninth inning, and with one out, he hits Pratt with a pitch and gives up a double to Kurt Abbott. Perez grounds out to second. That keeps Pratt at third since he didn't run on contact, and Alfonso strikes out. El Leiter is probably salty that he was pulled at this point, but at least he's in line for the win. That is until with one out to the ninth inning, Paul O'Neill walks on a 10 pitch at bat. Then Elise Polonia, who is pinch hitting for Brocious singles, and Vizcaino singles to load the bases. And then Chuck Knobloch scores O'Neill on a game tying sack fly. Armando Benitez with another blown save in his postseason career. So that forces extra innings. The Yankees do load the bases on walks with one outs in the 10th, but O'Neill hits into a 4-6-3 double play. Rivera and Mike Stanton retire all nine Mets in innings 10 through 12. And then with one out in the 12th inning, Tino Martinez singles and he moves to third on a Posada double. And O'Neill is intentionally walked. Soho pops out. And then Vizcaino walks it off with an RBI single. That ends the longest series game ever to this point at 4 hours and 51 minutes. The final score of this marathon, 4-3. The teams combined for 22 hits. No errors either. This is the third consecutive game one that has had a lot of drama here where the Yankees seem like they are down and out. 
and they find a way to come back and steal it. And this makes now 13 consecutive World Series games won by the Bronx Bombers. And this, by the way, is Vizcaino's sixth Major League team, but it will not be his last Major League team, as we'll find out in a future episode. So he is the true definition of a journeyman, but hey, he gets the job done. Indeed he does. So we need to go back to the regular season before we talk about Game 2. So the Yankees swept an interleague doubleheader on July 8th, which was a very unique thing because they played an afternoon game at Shea Stadium, then they went to the Bronx and played a game at Yankee Stadium. In the second game, Roger Clemens was pitching for the Yankees. Mike Piazza was at the plate. And when these teams met previously in the season, Piazza hit a grand slam off of Clemens. And Clemens, whether intentional or not, gets his revenge, if you even call it that, on Piazza by beating Piazza with a fastball to the helmet. And I remember when I was younger seeing the replay on this, and Piazza is completely dazed and not able to stand for many minutes. He said afterwards, it was definitely intentional. And this would be the first time that the two are facing each other. The New York media is hyping this up like there's no tomorrow. And while some suggested that the three-month-old incident was far enough in the past that the teams would forget about it, Todd Zeal responded, like hell it is. You hear stories occasionally, too, about something happening in a game where a couple of teams meet, and then they'll meet, you know, a month or two or three down the line, and they don't seem to forget about it, and you'll get that bad blood getting reignited, and we have a prime example of it on a pitch here in this top of the first inning. Uh, Timo Perez and Edgardo Alfonso have both struck out to open the game, and Clemens is working on Piazza, Throws a pitch, Piazza swings at it, breaks his bat in fouling it off, but the chunk of the bat ends up going towards the mound, which, you know, not an uncommon thing. You know, you've got to be careful of broken bat pieces coming your way. It's what happens after that that is just ventures into the bizarre and inexcusable, I would say. What happens is Clements is able to handle this piece of wood from the bat and for reasons that no one will ever understand or really know, I think, he flings it with all the energy he has towards Piazza as he runs towards first base. The bat misses Piazza, but both dugouts understandably empty, and Piazza understandably delivers some choice words towards uh, Clemens, and Clemens somehow was not ejected for this. I don't know how that would play in today's game, but this made the game to follow seem very secondary. Joe Torre had to really struggle trying to defend Clemens when he talks to the media afterwards. He can only come up with one of those things that happens sometimes. I'm convinced Roger wasn't throwing the bat at him. It was a get-off-the-field kind of thing. Somehow, I don't think he believed his own words. Piazza called the instant bizarre. He said that Clemens, quote-unquote, seemed extremely apologetic and unsure and confused and unstable. John Franco simply said, he's an asshole. And what gives Franco's viewpoint credibility is Clemens clearly mouthing as soon as the incident happens, I thought it was the ball. Which, first of all, if you get the ball, why are you throwing it at the batter instead of throwing it to the first baseman? But... 
Clemens in the World Series film would double down on that viewpoint. And this just got me so riled up and so upset. I had to literally call you and say this is the biggest crack of shit I have ever seen anyone utter in one of these World Series films. You are not wrong because that prompted me immediately going to watch the clip of it as well. And it's, I mean, there, there's to some degree you can give a little bit of leeway in terms of a heat of the moment thing. But there is a very distinct difference between the bat coming at you and the ball coming at you. Like, there, there is no way that you pick up the barrel of the bat and go, oh, this must be the ball. Yeet. I just, there, you're, you're absolutely right. There, there's absolutely no way that there wasn't at least some measure of intent. You know, I'm not saying a, you know, intending to hit him and hurt him, but, you know, definitely throw it in his direction, send a message, and just not okay. I mean, you have to give Clemens a little credit for saying that maybe it was an instinctive thing on his part, but knowing what we know now about Clemens' extracurricular activities throughout his career, I have to imagine that it was at least somewhat related to those. I would say that there's a strong possibility that that is the case. Somehow, baseball has to be played after this, although I'm sure nobody remembers anything else that happened after this, and understandably so, but we'll try and get you to care about it anyway. With two outs in the bottom of the first inning, Hampton walks Justice and Williams on eight pitches, and Martinez and Posada hit back-to-back -back RBI singles. And then in the second inning with one on two outs, Lenny Harris hits a would-be home run to left field that barely went foul. He ultimately struck out. And then to add insult to injury, Scott Brosh's homers to left to lead off the second. That barely clears the foul pole. So I think that is a sure sign that it is not the Mets' night. And to drive that point home further, Clemens strikes out nine, walks nobody over eight shutout innings. The Mets, in fact, have two hits and three errors after eight innings. And Jeter doubles with one out in the eighth inning and later scores on a Martinez RBI single to add some insurance. The Yankees' last series loss when leading after eight innings was Game 4 of the 1947 series. And it turns out that Martinez's RBI single was very much needed because to begin the ninth inning, Jeff Nelson gives up an Alfonso single, a Piazza two-run homer to left, and a Ventura single, and Rivera has to come in for him. And Zeal just misses a home run when Clay Bellinger, who had entered for justice and left to begin the ninth inning, caught the ball at the top of the wall. And then with two outs, Jay Payton hits a three-run homer to right. Rivera's only other playoff home run to this point was given up to Sandy Alomar in Game 4 of the 97 ALDS. And then Abbott strikes out looking to end the game. The Yankees are able to hang on and win 6-5, to five, but it was a really close call. The 6-5 to five score, on the one hand, doesn't really do justice to it because the Yankees were in control for basically the entire game, at least until this top of the ninth inning when it's more or less two mistakes, but there were a lot of other things kind of sprinkled in. Also, I feel awful for Todd Zeal after what happened in Game 1 and then just narrowly misses another one in Game 2 to almost the exact same spot. And as we flip the series from the Bronx to Queens, George Steinbrenner, not happy with the subpar furniture in the Shea Stadium Visitors Clubhouse, sent trucks to Shea Stadium to bring the team's recliners and sofas. First of all, you're able to do that because everything's nearby, but that's such a typical George Steinbrenner move. 
It really is. It makes me wonder, like, if they were playing in, say, Philadelphia for the World Series, which is a little bit more of a trip, but still doable, if he felt the veteran stadium accommodations weren't good enough, would he have done the same thing? I don't know. Whether or not it made a difference in this Game 3, which Ben Stiller attended, it really does not make a difference to Orlando Duque Hernandez, at least on the mound. He strikes on the side in the first and second innings. Unfortunately for him, while that happens, Robin Ventura homers to right center on the first pitch of the second inning. So a bit of a blemish there. Meanwhile, Rick Reed of the Mets gets strikeouts for five of his first six outs. He strikes out the side in the second. With two outs in the third inning, Jeter singles. That extends his series hitting streak to 12. He promptly scores on an RBI double by Justice, who at that point was the career leader in playoff games played and RBIs. And let's just talk about Justice for a moment. Ever since 1991, when he was with the Braves, we have seen his name come up time and time again with several different teams. And it does not surprise me that at this point he's played in more playoff games than anybody else. He's played in a lot, and so I'm going to keep his baseball reference page for World Series history up because he will come back up again. Meanwhile, Tino Martinez singles to lead off the fourth inning. He later scores on a go-ahead RBI triple by O'Neill. That is his first career triple in postseason play. Later, Mike Piazza reaches on a ground rule double on fan interference to lead off the sixth inning. He later scores on a zeal game-tying RBI double. The Mets have the bases loaded with nobody out, but Hernandez strikes out Peyton and Bordick. Then Rick Reed's spot is up, and obviously you don't want him. So Daryl Hamilton comes in as a pinch hitter. He hits it to a fielder's choice, so El Duque is able to get out of that jam. And then Dennis Cook and John Franco get the Mets out of jams in the 7th and 8th inning. And then with one out in the bottom of the 8th, Zeal singles. And he promptly scores from first an Agbayani RBI double. That sends Agbayani's playoff hitting streak to 12. And then Peyton has an infield single. And Joe McEwing, who is pinch running for Agbayani, moves to third. Lane Harris is then announced as a pinch hitter for Bordick. So Stanton comes in for Hernandez. And then Bubba Trammell is announced as the pinch hitter for Harris. And Trammell drives McEwing home on a sack fly. Benitez gets over some of his past playoff disappointment by pitching a shutout ninth inning for the save. That is the first loss for Hernandez in nine playoff stars and the first loss for the Yankees in series play in 14 games. 4-2, the final score, Mets win. Yeah, I mean, so far this is the best showing by a National League club against this Yankee team in, like you said, in honestly four years since that 96 series when the Braves won those first two before getting curb stomped over the final four. So we go to game four, which Billy Crystal attends, and Derek Jeter is not wasting any time. He bats lead off instead of his usual second spot and proves to be a smart move by Joe Torre because he homers on the first pitch to left field. And that is going to set the tone for the evening. Paul Neal triples with one out to the second inning. That is his second final career playoff triple. He later scores on a sack fly by Brocious. Then Jeter triples to lead off the third inning. He promptly scores on a Soho ground out to second. In the third inning, Timo Perez singles to lead it off. He later scores on a Piazza to run homer to left. And that does play a factor the next time Piazza comes to the plate. We have two outs and no one on in the fifth inning. 
Danny Nagle had started instead of David Cohn in part because of his 7-3 lifetime record versus the Mets from his years in the National League. But Joe Torre told Don Zimmer on the bench, I can't have Nagel pitch to Piazza again. He would later say in the 20th anniversary film for the Subway series produced by Fox, I have to be loyal to the 25 before I'm loyal to the 1. So he makes the decision to take Nagel out of the ball game, which makes him one out short of being eligible for a World Series win. David Cohn comes in. Tori would say that him and Nagel have not spoken since this incident. And to be fair, Cohn does make Tori look smart when he induces a pop out to second for his last ever appearance for the Yankees. That is the only batter that he faces. And I do feel for Denny Nagel, but that right there shows why Joe Tori was such a smart manager. It's a brilliant tactical move on Tori's part. And to me, I would say it's more of an illustration why the pitcher win as a statistic as it is set up right now is a crock of BS and there will be other prime examples that will come up later on. I know there's one in particular that I have in mind. Those two runs driven in by Piazza account for the only runs that the Mets score the entire game. You have a shutdown New York bullpen. Jeff Nelson is the man who gets the win over pitching one at third shutout innings. Following him are Mike Stanton and Mariano Rivera. Rivera gets six outs for his 17th straight postseason save. The first coming on a sliding catch by O'Neill to Rob Alonzo to lead off the eighth inning. We have a 3-2 final score. The Yankees are one way away from winning it again. Paul O'Neill's made a couple of nice defensive plays here in recent World Series. Bobby Jones got the start for the Mets, allowed all three runs over five innings. Glendon Rush does a good job in relief, throws a couple innings, scatters three hits over those two innings, but does not allow any further damage. Unfortunately for the Mets, they aren't able to get any additional offense besides that Piazza home run. And Paul O'Neill probably put it best. This has been a gut-wrenching series. They've been one-run games. When you walk off the field, you know you've been in a battle. And true, to this point, three of the four games have been decided by one run, and the other game was decided by two runs. So you really cannot take any plays off in this particular World Series. We've talked about it, and especially, you know, in last episode and the one before that of you cannot give this Yankee team extra chances or a sliver of life because they will seize upon it. So we go into game five. The Mets opt to send Al Leiter back out after he pitched really well in game one. And Bernie Williams inflicts some damage against him when he leads off the second with a home run down the left field line. That is his first hit of the series. And then with one out on the bottom of the second, Trammell walks and Peyton singles. Wider of all people reaches when Martinez fields a bunt and Pettit can't handle the flip. Pettit is charged with an error and Trammell scores. And then Agbayani scores Peyton on RBI single when Broch just fails to barehand a grounder to third base. Abbott walks with one out in the fourth but is promptly picked off. Then with one out in the sixth inning, Jeter hits a game-tying solo home run to left, which Placido Domingo, who was at this game, would later tell Jeter that he actually called. That is irrelevant, just a footnote, but it's nice to know that an opera singer is able to call home runs. And then in the seventh inning, Alfonso singles to lead off, but he is stranded. 
And then Stanton, who relieves Pett after 129 pitches and allowing no earned runs over seven innings, throws a perfect eighth inning to establish a series career record 1.08 ERA among relievers. But Al Leiter is still on for the Mets. He strikes out four hairs between the eighth and ninth innings, including three straights. And then Jorge Posada comes up, and he falls into a 2-2 hole. He ends up walking on nine pitches. What happened was Posada fouled off two pitches, took a ball, fouled off another pitch, and took ball four on the ninth pitch, and it drained the last of Leiter's energy. At this point, he's thrown 138 pitches, which is not going to be allowable by any manager today. And then Brocious singles to move Posada to second. That brings Leiter to a season-high 141 pitches. And Luis Soho, who had entered as part of a double switch in the eighth inning, gets a hit off of Leiter on his 142nd pitch. He scores Posada. And then Brocia scores when the ball hits Posada and goes into the dugout. Leiter would lament it was a 15-hopper. Because you take a look at this hit that would cause Franco to relieve Leiter. And Leiter would get a nice standing ovation, deservedly so. It seemed like this ball took as many bounces as a bouncy ball. And I can't remember ever seeing a ball take this many bounces when it's hit right back up the middle and trickles through the infield like that. I'm not going to call it Yankee Devil Magic, but I kind of want to call it Yankee Devil Magic because it's just a lot of these World Series, like, you know, they've been dominant to this point. You know, they're 11-1 and in their previous 12 World Series games and having won the prior four in 1996 as well, if you want to go back a little bit further. And there haven't been a lot of games of the blowout variety. It's been They've been able to take advantage of miscues and opportunities and things like Al Leiter arguably being left in longer than he should, even though he was absolutely dealing. I mean, you can maybe argue after the walk to Posada, which is just a phenomenal job by Posada of being able to stay alive and fight pitches off to be able to get on any way he could. I'd almost argue at that point is maybe when you should have replaced him as it is. Soho hits the 15 hopper through up the middle and you have two runs scoring and the Yankees are now all of a sudden just three outs away from their third straight title. Yeah, Leiter would say, I know my heart's I pitched well. Deep down, I felt I could get that third out. Obviously, that did not happen. And I'm sure for Jorge Posada, a sore thigh from a ball thrown his way never felt so good. Because Mariano Rivera is coming in. And even though the Mets led the end now with 45 come from behind wins in the regular season, Rivera is Rivera. He has 17 straight postseason saves to this point. His last blown save of the regular season was August 18th versus the Angels. And he gets the first out, but then Agbayani walks. And then Alfonso has a fly out. And then you have Mike Piazza coming up. And this is who you want up if you're the Mets. Power against power. Even though Rivera is not known for being a power pitcher, he is known for getting guys out even though they know what's coming because he just had that movement. So Jeter calls a timeout. He jogs to the mound. And he says to Rivera, you know what he's trying to do here. He's trying to take you out. Be smart. Don't be stupid. Don't just slay one over to try to get ahead. Be careful. This guy's not just trying to loop the ball over second. He wants to take you deep. Now let's go. Rivera gets out with a called strike. And then Piazza swings and connects with a belt-high fastball. And with the scoreboard reading exactly 12 o'clock in the Eastern time zone, Tori is screaming no. 
but then a few steps from the warning track, the ball lands in Bernie Williams' glove. And for the 26th time in World Series history, Yankees win. The Yankees win. I gotta admit, I've never really been a huge fan of that particular call, but it's agonizing just how close Mike Piazza was from tying up game five. Now, I don't know that that would have been enough to stem the tide of everything else just because the Yankees had continually found a way and they've shown it for the last couple of years. They do it again. It is a three-peat. As you mentioned, the 26th time in franchise history, they are World Series champions. You have an emotional Joe Torre being lifted up by his players as they put him on their shoulders. But obviously, everybody's going to focus on what the players did. Rivera has a series record seventh save in his career that breaks a tie that he had with Rally Fingers. Derek Jeter becomes the only player in World Series history to also be All-Star Game MVP that same season. And let's just talk about everything that Derek Jeter has done in his career to this point. And let's compare him to Joe DiMaggio because one of my books actually compares him to Joe DiMaggio, at least the early part of DiMaggio's career. And it's definitely a sign that he is a true heir apparent to the Clipper DiMaggio's Yankees won 598 games from 36 to 41, approaching 100 a year, and failed to win the World Series just once. Jeter's Yankees won 487 games, approaching 100 a year, and they also failed to win the World Series only once. Over five playoffs, they have played 754 ball, going 46 and 15. Only one team in history besides DiMaggio's Yankees, who won the World Series four years row from 36 to 39, and Jeter's Yankees have won as many titles in a five-year span. And that was the 49-53 Yankees when DiMaggio was passing the torch to Mickey Mantle. And just to dive in even further, DiMaggio scored 625 runs through five full seasons. Jeter scored 623. DiMaggio had 994 hits. Jeter had 1,034. DiMaggio and Jeter both played in 19 World Series games. And both times the Yankees were 16-3. and Jeter hit 342, DiMaggio hit 304. From 36 to 39, DiMaggio scored or drove in 21 of the Yankees' 113 runs, or 19%. Jeter is responsible for 22 of the Yankees' 85 runs in this series, or 26%. And that could be a good reason that Jeter would be named World Series MVP, maybe a lifetime achievement award for him, but he definitely earned it in this series alone, I would say. Yeah, Jeter's line in the five-game series, a slash line of 409, 480, 864 for a 1344 OPS. He had a couple home runs. That uh, 1344 OPS, just nine points ahead of Paul O'Neill, who slashed 474, 545, 789. Did not have any home runs. Drove in just a couple. Really, the only blemish on Jeter's mark in the 2000 World Series is the fact that he struck out eight times in 22 at-bats. The Yankees only won 87 games during the regular season. They joined the 87 Twins and 59 Dodgers as well as the worst teams ever to win a World Series. But Joe Torre's response to that was, we can put our record, our dedication, our resolve up against any team that's ever played the game of baseball. And they definitely proved it. And Yankee fans returned their love in droves. An estimated 3.5 million fans were at the championship parade. And Derek Jeter was probably the happiest to win this World Series. 
before the World Series began, Mets fans would shout, Jeter, you suck, while Yankees fans would say, whatever you do, don't lose to the Mets. So Jeter said, we had a lot to lose. I'm serious. I would have moved right out of the city if we lost. You could have taken our three rings and thrown them out the window as far as Yankees fans were concerned. I'm glad I played a Subway Series, but maybe once is enough. That goes to show you the level of expectations that Yankee fans have. They've had some stretches of being gone. You know, prior to this four titles in five-year dynasty, they had a 15-year absence from the World Series. And prior to that, there aren't a ton of huge gaps in their appearances in the Fall Classic. And obviously that shows with the aforementioned 26 titles that were to some degree beating to death here. But it just, it's a totally different ball game out in New York, in particular in the Bronx. And the Yankees, of course, are the first team to three-peat since the age of 72, 73, 74. Derek Jeter, age 26, has already had a full baseball career. It's a career that a lot of guys who play longer never experience. So I'm glad that he is able to experience this at such a young age. And he'll get to experience it yet again along with the rest of his Yankee teammates in 2001. They are going for an incredible fourth World Series championship. Not unprecedented by Yankee standards, but unprecedented throughout the rest of baseball. They will face a team that has not been to the World Series in large part because they're only four years old. But they will also be doing it against a very tragic backdrop. And I almost dread to do this episode because of what this tragic backdrop is. Yeah, no, we're going to have, unfortunately, a very somber start to next week's episode. But I would still encourage you to tune in next week because that somber backdrop will give way to one of the best series ever played. Absolutely, and it's probably just what people need against this backdrop. And until then, for Lucas Mitchell, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thanks for listening to our 2000 episode, Then There Were Two, A History of the World Series. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on what is still Twitter in our world. Subscribe as well. We'll see you next time.